0: The Sustainable Investing Podcast by Aberdeen. Hi everyone, I'm Eva Cairns, your host for today, and you're listening to the Aberdeen Sustainable Investing Podcast, discussing all things relating to sustainable and responsible investing. Now I'm delighted to introduce our guest for today, Samuel Grantham. Sam is an investment manager at Aberdeen, responsible for managing a number of global investment-grade portfolios, including dedicated ESG strategies such as sustainable, carbon mitigation and the recently launched Climate Transition bond Strategy. Samuel's also a member of the Aberdeen ESG Network, an on-desk ESG decision-making function, and has been a key figure in the development of carbon analysis and co-designing Aberdeen's fixed-income climate transition framework. Sam has got a degree in chemical and environmental engineering from the University of Nottingham. Sam, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Eva. Always, always nice speaking with you.
0: So shall we talk about uh, a little bit about your journey and what has inspired you after completing your degree um, in uh, chemical and environmental engineering to get into asset management and, and focus extensively on climate related issues in your
1: investment solutions? Um, how was that journey for you? Well, I think the journey really started at, at university. As you mentioned, studied chemical engineering, but I also decided actually to minor in environmental. Um, usually you do one or the other. Uh, clearly very, you know, very different subsectors of engineering, one very much focused on creating and, and designing processes that convert, you know, raw materials into products that we all use every day, but also looking at geology, you know, understanding where and how fossil fuels are formed over, over millions of years. Whilst on the environmental engineering side, it was all really about producing things efficiently, you know, with sustainability kind of front and center. So really looking at disposable waste recovery of damaged land and the management of pollutants, et cetera. And to be completely honest, I couldn't understand why these courses weren't combined. I felt they were so interconnected. You know, thankfully, times have changed. But at the time, it was really quite a, a scary realization for myself. So when I was leaving the university and you know, looking for a job, I, I knew I didn't want to work in the oil and gas space, and, and environmental engineering wasn't really as big as it is today. So if you look at the renewable capacity growth rates over the last few years, you no, know, clearly very quickly um, growing relative to the oil and gas industry. And actually, you know, we're both aware the IEA report um, that came out this year suggests no new oil and gas development. Um, So hopefully, you know, that accelerates that effect. But at the time there was, you know, it really wasn't the case. And so I looked at the asset management industry. I thought, I like the long-term nature of investing. I think it ties in nicely to the sustainability angle, you know, not just focused on short-term profits, but working with companies, engaging with companies over the longer term. And to be honest, I enjoyed really kind of how relevant it was to real world events. And hoped, you know, maybe, you know, yeah, I, I did hope, you know, given the growing concerns around climate that I would actually be able to kind of impact it in other ways. And so I joined Aberdeen you know, on, on, on the graduate scheme. And uh, we actually, you know, once I joined the global credit team where, where I am today, we launched one of the first kind of low carbon strategies in the fixed income space. And since then, it's been very busy developing, you know, kind of and progressing with that kind of sustainability mindset. Um, so not just low carbon, but sustainability and Actually, as you've already mentioned, uh, recently launching the Climate Transition Strategy, which we're very excited about. And obviously, you've been a crucial part of that as well. Um, So thank you.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And it's so nice to see how actually, you know, that journey from, you know, the, the caring about sustainability in those aspects and realizing that by going into asset management, you can actually have such an impact through the way you invest in that space as well. So, and and the other area that you told me about beforehand is you went to school in Singapore, and I believe you got quite involved in understanding the concept of green buildings. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm very happy to. I mean, really kind of since, I think it's probably about 2005, Singapore has been really a leader in the green building space. Um, So they launched a, a, a scheme called the BCA Green Mark Scheme. So BCA stands for Building Construction Authority. Um, And that really formed the kind of the backbone of Singapore's green building plan or master plan, so to speak. Um, And really it's all about encouraging and engaging industry stakeholders to adopt new green building policies. It's clearly again, evolved over time, but the first edition really what it did was it targeted, it targeted new buildings to encourage developers to embed sustainability as part of the building lifecycle, but from the onset. So, you know, and as obviously the built environment expanded, it's reached to kind of target the greener of the larger stock of existing buildings, engage building occupants to change their energy consumption behavior. So it's really, you know, at the time, really powerful um, and really kind of ahead of, of, of peers relative to other regions, et cetera. So yes, when I was in school, um, basically our school was expanding and I was really fascinated at how, you know, purely through design, you could enable more efficient water use. You could you know, enable better energy efficiency, whether that's in air conditioning and, and ventilation um, which is clearly key for Singapore, and so I ended up actually doing my my final dissertation on just that. So I was working with the architects, I was working with the engineers, trying to quantify the impacts of these features, and it, anyway, it was really interesting. And again, not something that had gained huge awareness, you know, 14 or, or so years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and is this something that you can now use? I guess in your you know your you managing, we talked earlier the recently launched climate transition bond strategy. Um, you know, we talked a bit about your background and your work in green buildings and chemical engineering. And obviously, in the climate transition bond strategy, it's all about the need for solutions with real world impact that that go beyond just decarbonizing the portfolio. So it'd be really good to hear a bit more about that. What are the underlying concepts of that strategy um, and how you bring in your, your experience um, into that?
1: Essentially, so for this strategy, we really what we do is we utilize kind of three key investment pillars to identify um, and also acknowledge the, the risks and opportunities of climate change. So the first is, is the leaders, um, and this is really about supporting the leading emission reducers in high emitting sectors. So for example, looking at utilities, building materials, um, et cetera. But also companies maybe from other sectors which are so strong in, in their kind of decarbonization policies, we think it causes like a, uh, almost like a ripple effect through the industry and drives emission reduction improvements elsewhere. This kind of ties back to, you know, to your question on, on, real world solutions. You know, we are not divesting from heavy emitting sectors. We're supporting those that we think are really doing what is new, uh, what is needed. And then the next bucket is, and this is actually quite unique to fixed income. And, and you know, I think it's incredibly interesting and maybe we can touch on it later as well, but, uh, we call this bucket, the adapter. So this is all about facilitating climate change adaptation. So supporting those addressing the physical risks. So for example, maybe looking at, um, climate resilient projects, such as flood defenses. You know, we, we definitely think this is a growing area of importance, given what, we talk, you know, given what we've talked about in the past and, and really expect this portion of the portfolio to grow over time. And then the final pillar, the final investment pillar is the solution. So supporting companies, helping the wider economy decarbonize through their products or services. So really kind of looking at companies replacing fossil fuels, improving energy efficiency, you know, looking at the circular economy um and and actually you know very relevant for the example just now on green buildings you know what we're seeing is an incredible amount of um green development from the real estate companies and actually i've got an example maybe we can touch on later um but hugely relevant and so what we do you know we we basically believe by following this approach this strategy we'll be able to avoid the transition risks whilst benefiting from the investment opportunities so in areas such as clean energy climate solutions but lastly, obviously, and it's key, but finance, climate change, adaptation and mitigation, which we think will, will benefit the wider society as well.
0: Yeah. And, and on that topic, I mean, we talked about physical impacts here and, um, and that we're seeing really you know, unfold around us, um, impacting every region and, and the latest IPCC report highlights that, you know, this will only get more severe and, and frequent and is seen as a kind of code red for humanity. You talked about um, the importance of adaptation solutions to address that. But how, you know, what does this mean really in terms of the investment process? How can this really be considered? And maybe not only in a, in a climate focused strategy, but also in the wider investment process in terms of really understanding how physical risks can impact, for example, the credit quality.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, very good question. Um, and clearly hugely relevant. You know, my my, my partner, she's Italian, and she told me the day that in August this year, temperatures in Sicily reached 39, well, 38.8 degrees Celsius. I think that was almost a whole degree hotter than um, it ever been recorded in Europe. So it it is scary. So when we really, when we think about the physical risks, clearly we can approach this from a number of different angles. Um, And again, as as I've mentioned, it is, there's a unique element to fixed income where we can look at specific project financing. So we could target maybe specific businesses, which we think are addressing the physical risks. Um, but we can also do that at the issuer level. But we can also then, you know, we can look at regions and say, you know, what regions do we think are vulnerable? Um, and we can basically um, invest via municipals or, or via actually government bonds. So yeah, it, it is an interesting space. And it is, it is evolving very quickly. I mean, in terms of the assessment criteria, because I think that's, that's how you'd start from an investment perspective, you know, it's not standardised. We do expect the data to improve, but it's, it's definitely an area that is less straightforward. For example, if we were looking at transition risks, you could look at the emission profile of companies or regions through time. You could look at the reduction targets that they have in place. But in terms of the physical risk, it, it is more complicated. So what we do is we, we basically break it down. We ensure, first of all, that the focus of the investment is in regions at risk from the physical effects. You know, that's key and quite obvious we then look in detail the types of measures they put in place whether that's by government policy or or, or corporates to address these risks so what evidence for example do they have that they're actually you know they're being sufficiently proactive with respect to these policies then of course and this goes back to the question around the data but we we do look at metrics to track the spending and the impacts of of the adaptation projects so if we're looking at a company we might say okay well how material are these activities to the company's future operations so looking at the, the capital investment, looking at the contribution to revenue, et cetera. You know, clearly this framework is essential for something like a climate transition strategy, but we really need policy developments in the space to support wide integration of adaptation of opportunities. And so I really hope, you know, this IPCC report results in a change which, which is very much needed. So I've got an example which I can touch on. So th- this is an interesting one. Chile is, is clearly a country very vulnerable to climate change. Um, And actually, if you look at certain kind of modeled scenarios, temperatures could increase between, I think it's something like one and four degrees across the country by the end of the century, which is material. They expect rainfall patterns to change from north to south. And actually, they expect water shortage, especially in the central part of of the region. And that's where obviously 70% of the population is living. Glaciers, which at the moment act as, you know, water reserves are and will continue to retreat. This is a country which has, you know, some incredible decarbonization policies in place. But they were also the first Latin American country to actually issue a green bond to direct proceeds towards climate resilience projects. So this includes things, for example, like flood defense infrastructure, but also looking at irrigation systems, making sure water uh, management is more efficient, but also looking at water pollution prevention measures as well. And so part of the framework that Chile has has incorporated, you know, they commit the Ministry of Finance to track these proceeds and publish periodic impact reports. So really, it's, 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 it's really exciting, you know. And also, I mean, it's scary. I mean, given the vulnerability of the region, the proactive nature and the policies that this government's put in place, you know, we think it's it's, it's really powerful and and, and really leading by example. Um, So a good example of an adapter in our view.
0: And that's, I think, a really important message that we obviously, there's a lot of focus on the race to zero and the transition. But at the same time, those physical impacts will become more severe and frequent. And as you say, they already are impacting so many regions today. And therefore, you also have to think about the adaptation aspect. Um, anyway, you know, in addition to the Race to Zero, we have the Race to Resilience. Um, Absolutely. yeah. So Sam, we you mentioned data um, and that it can be a, a challenge um, to, to measure really the impact on climate change in the real world. So what are the main challenges in
1: your view? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are clearly lots. I mean, we, what we try and do is we try and break it down by the, the pillar or the investment strategy. So whether we're addressing the physical risks, you know, looking at solutions or, or the transition risks. I mean, for the transition leaders, you know, we expect our the companies that we look at to, and support um, to be cutting emissions faster than the peer group. And so we actually show the average emission reductions of our leaders relative to the sector. And, that, and that's really important for us. If we look at the solution space, you know, this is not actually that standardized as well. You know, you've got energy efficiency, you've got waste material recovery, you've got emission savings, you know, all of this really, really important for the pillar, but the data is it's just not standardized. It's not as easy as looking at a, a carbon footprint of a portfolio, for example. And, and so it's why we actually have to break it down. We, we kind of look at subsectors of the data. Again on the physical risk, I mean we've touched on this, it's, it's again it's not standardized. Um, and so you know again everyone's very familiar with carbon emissions but that's only one element of, of climate change um and so we really need to develop other areas which is why you know the ipcc report is, is going to be crucial especially around the physical risks but yeah look, i mean on the physical risk you can't just work out a monetary value to, to measure the risks it's the quality of people's lives affected by climate change it's the loss of biodiversity but also the impact on life expectancy. So it's it's hugely complicated. I think what we do at Aberdeen is we, we ask the question in a different way. We say, how do we measure success? And I guess one way we measure success, and I'll use the transition leaders as an example, is seeing companies continuing to raise the bar with respect to their policy commitments. So EDP, this is a vertically integrated electric utility based predominantly in Portugal, and we consider them a transition leader. Um, we actually we, we looked at the company last year for the transition leader space um, and had very aggressive targets, but also credible short-term targets. So they were looking at renewable capacity increases by 12%, but over a two-year period. So after one year, we can really sense check those kind of targets. But they also actually committed to phasing out coal by 2030, which was a very strong kind of message from management but then actually this year and this is this is where the success comes in you know they raised the bar even higher they were already kind of way ahead of peers certain peers in the european space but they've actually decided to to have zero coal exposure five years ahead of schedule they've got 90 percent scope one and two reductions but also very strong scope three and actually and, and this is something we discussed as a team recently you know i think they're one of the first if not the first utilities in europe to officially phase out gas I mean, this is, you know, in the investment space, very much considered a transition fuel. And they've said, actually, there's no place for, for gas going forward. So they're going to phase it out by 2030. So really remarkable how far they've come. And, and, and actually, they're not slowing down either, which is just great to see. Yeah,
0: that's a great example. And I think also shows the power of this active research uh, approach and understanding really how credible the transition strategies and how ambitious they are to, to come up with that transition leaders bucket you were talking about. So we've got COP26 coming up soon. Um, and obviously, you know, we, we talked a bit about the need to have also the regulatory environment um, uh, to support the net zero transition. And so the pressure is on to raise ambition and keep the net 1.5 degree goal alive. And COP26 is focused on on five pillars in terms of the content that they they focus on. Energy transition, finance, adaptation, and then also clean road transport and nature. And particularly for the last two quite specific ones, transport and nature, um, where do you see kind of strong solutions emerging? Have you got examples um, of how you would think about
1: those two? Yeah, I think yeah, definitely got some good examples we can go through. I think, you know, you have to take a step back sometimes, especially when you're looking at the transport space. So if you look at energy consumption by sector, what you would see is the transport sector not only has grown the fastest, you know, In the last decade but also consumes the highest amount of energy globally Um, and actually if we look at the energy consumption of that sector of the transport sector i think it's something like almost you know it's only around one percent is consumed from electricity so it's really it's a critical focus with huge potential so when we think about climate change in its in its broadest sense you know clearly we need to replace the fossil fuel consumption with electricity and generate that electricity from from clean energy but it's not just about you know supporting renewables. I mean, clearly very important, but it's, it's about changing how we consume that energy as well. But also on the transport element, you know, you really need to understand the region and get a sense of what's currently in place as well in terms of infrastructure. So in the UK, for example, very different from, you know, certain Latin American regions with respect to public transport, access to electricity, etc. So starting, I mean, starting with the UK, the government actually recently introduced a net zero target for GHG emissions by 2050. Um, and actually if you think about buses and and, and coaches, they're responsible for just six, I think it's 6% of pollution from road transport. And then obviously, you know, cars and and diesel vans account for something like 71% of that. So, I mean, that's the focus really. Um, so we're looking, we looked at a company, um, the stagecoach, you know, you know, obviously everyone, everyone knows stagecoach So you, so basically it's, um, it basically recently completed, I think it was the Europe's biggest electric bus fleet order. And they're really a major advocate on clean transport policy. And they pledged that all new buses to be kind of ultra low or, or zero emission from 2025. We actually looked at a research paper by Greener Journeys, and they suggest that if everyone switched from, you know, a car to a bus for just one journey a month, it would result in something like 1 billion fewer car journeys and would save, I think, something like 2 million tons of CO2 every year in the wow. UK. So sometimes the simple solutions <laughs> yeah. are actually the most effective. It's, it's really quite, quite amazing. It's not just about supporting the transport companies themselves, though. You also have to think about the supply chain. So you know, if we look at the transport industry, there's a, there's a company called Alstom and their entire business is manufacturing transport products um, and services. And they're very focused on low carbon trains. Um, it's a growing part and continues to be um, you know, a focus for them. And, and actually the majority of their business is, is now electric trains. So in Europe, I think it's around 50% of the rail network is not electrified. And, and actually, to be honest, much of it won't be because of the low density, you know, the economies of scale just don't make sense in certain regions, given the volume of, of, of passengers. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to develop battery and, and hydrogen powered trains to replace these old diesel trains. And, and so it's, it's, I mean, we, we, we really think Alstom's an interesting one. It's got kind of first move advantage on, on the hydrogen train front. They're heavily involved in lobbying for green hydrogen and, and expanding that market. Um, but also actually, and then this is actually something more interesting that I've, I've read recently, you know they're looking at digitization of transport services so they're improving the energy efficiency that they're looking at how systems can help so they for example they have a system in place with some metropolitan transport networks where one train's braking process generates electricity to power another train running so it's all interconnected it's it's, it's really fascinating so that's transport in terms of the nature example in the czech republic what we've seen in the last 100 or 200 years is the natural ecosystem has largely been replaced by unstable spruce and pine monocultures, uh, which can hardly really play a crucial environmental and social role that natural or semi-natural forest ecosystems right. have traditionally played in the past. And what this is, and it's really sad, but this has really led to a dramatic decline in the country's biodiversity. And actually what, what we've found in, in recent research reports is they're now suggesting that scientists think that this has resulted in in severe flooding as well. So We've looked at a company and it's called CTP. It's a Central uh, Eastern European real estate company. And they, already they have you know, very, very strong green credentials in Europe. But they recognize that construction is extremely difficult to decarbonize. And so CTP has developed an extensive offsetting scheme, essentially. So what they've done is they they own five and a half million square miles of, of partially deforested monoculture land. And what they're doing is they're reforesting it. You know, they're, they're adding diverse kind of native species. So they're not only improving their biodiversity, they're creating natural capital offsets. But furthermore, they're also protecting from the physical risks of, of flooding. So it's a really nice initiative from the company. And again, simple, but really effective. You know, that combination of adaptation and mitigation using natural capital, which I just think is, is, is great.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, that's a fascinating example of bringing all these things together, really. So quite powerful. And we're coming to the end of our podcast. I just wanted to ask you with a final question, whether there are any people or kind of eye-opening moments that have inspired you on your journey? Um, Any books or podcasts that you would recommend to listeners?
1: I mean, in terms of the eye-opening moment, again, I think that has to go back to university and kind of realising whole industries have been educated without considering you know sustainability and the overall environmental impacts that result from these you know these intensive industrial processes again i think times are changing but it was it was a real kind of eye-opening moment for me yeah yeah um in terms of books there, there are clearly a lot out there now i think one that stands out is um is a book called what we need to do now for a zero carbon future it's it's by chris goodall it's it's really an it's an urgent book but it's practical um, and and actually inspiring, which you don't always get, you know, lucky enough to read, given mm-hmm. the challenges that lie ahead and and clearly, you know, quite scary and real. Um, but what the book does is it kind of draws on, you know, actions, policies, technologies already kind of emerging in the world, and and really kind of outlines ways to achieve it, but really mm-hmm. keeps it practical, which is which is really important because sometimes you can get, you know, burdened by the, the technology and, and relying on kind of new technologies which don't exist today. So yeah, very very good read. I, I'd highly recommend it and then And then, on the podcast, again, um I'm trying to think of one that's potentially different <laughs> um, so till climate, this is a podcast I listen to, and it's it's really a, a useful way to get up to speed in a range of complex climate topics. Mm-hmm. What they do is they kind of break down the science, the technologies and the policies behind climate change. But what's really neat about it is it's it's short and concise, so it's, I think it's usually about fifteen minutes, and it's clearly something I find very interesting, but you also have them explain it from a scientist's perspective, so very relevant, very real. Um, and very factual. And again, only 15 minutes. So you can you, you feel like you can learn quite a lot in, in that space of time.
0: Fantastic. Excellent. No, I haven't uh, listened to that one before. So that's definitely on my list now. Thank you, Sam. It's been such a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, thanks a lot for your time and your um, fantastic contributions and examples.
1: Thanks, Eva. Yeah, I mean, thanks for all the good questions and, and actually all your help so far on everything climate. So yeah, <laughs> huge thanks from me as well. Thank you. Excellent.
0: You've been listening to the Aberdeen Sustainable Investing Podcast, a podcast relating to all things responsible and sustainable investing. And today, a focus on investing to drive climate mitigation and adaptation forward. Thank you all for tuning in. You can find all our episodes on various podcast channels, such as Spotify and Apple, as well as on the Aberdeen website. Until our next podcast, goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Investing Podcast, brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and for more great content, visit Aberdeen.com.
2: This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen.